Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of First Christian Church, Disciples of Christ of St. Paul, located in Matamidi, Minnesota. We are a suburban congregation united in Christ and grounded in the values of diversity, solidarity, and witness. You can learn more about us by going to fccstpaul.org. Here is this week's sermon. reading from Mark 7, verses 31 to 37. Then he returned from the region of Tyree and went by the way of Shaddai toward the sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. He brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And he took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, and he sighed and said to him, Epatha, or something like that, <laughs> that means be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, and more jealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying he had done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This ends this reading of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, church. Good morning. As a way of introduction to this text, I want to begin with 
this concession. This, while seven verses, is a very complicated and challenging text. One that, while may feel easy on the front end, challenges our faith. Saying that, I affirm something deep and rich about this text that any one of the points that I'm about to raise could become a sermon in and of themselves. And I understand that the insights are very personal to where I come from and from my tradition and from my family. And I also understand that there are others who may not see it this way and may choose to do things differently. That doesn't mean that they're bad people, but that means that they have made a different choice. And while I stand richly within my tradition and within my community, I understand that there are differences. The beginning of this text is fairly simple reading. Jesus arrives in a certain region, a deaf man is brought to him, Jesus does a miraculous act of taking a little spittle and puts it on his ears. And suddenly he is healed. Jesus, always wanting to be the humble one, asked him not to speak. But yet they speak. It's a comforting tale about love, Jesus' love and God's love for the least of us, Jesus' humbleness. And at any point in this text, if, or any point of this sermon, I get beyond myself, remember that message, because that is an easy message to get. Think about it. It's your red button. It gets you out. Yeah. This is a complicated text, nonetheless. The simple complication is the question, do deaf people need to be healed? Now, for most of us who are hearing me, this seems like a dumb question. Of course, they have a disability. They would be better off if they were able to hear. And I understand that. But this prejudice toward the spoken word is a type of prejudice found in what we call oralism. Oralism is a way of teaching the deaf through oral language by using lip reading, speech, mimicry, mouth shapes, and breathing patterns. It's about trying to take a deaf person and make them an oral person that can speak as opposed to one that can sign. In these schools, 
it had been historic that you don't teach ASL. There was, and still is, a tradition or group that feels this is wrong, that people, that deaf people should be able to communicate in a natural language for them in ASL. This is supported by, this has historically been supported by people like Gallaudet, where people are, where children are taught to use sign language as just, as the way of communicating, as opposed to just being taught how to speak. We want to believe this is the dominant way. And if you go to any educational institution, they will tend to use sign language as a main communication. If you look at somewhere like MSAD, Minnesota Academy for the Deaf, it is a primarily ASL environment. Yet that isn't to say there aren't other schools who still benefit in oralism. And because children have access to cochlear ear implants now, there is this belief that, well, we'll just give the child a cochlear ear implant and then they can be mainstreamed into a normal classroom, to a hearing classroom. The problem with that is once you take the cochlear ear implant out, the child is still deaf. And there's a value in having an environment where you have people who are having the same struggles. Oralism takes its place even in the Christian ministry. Ministers and educators have used this text to justify an oralist tradition. Some tradition bar deaf people from partaking in communion for the simple reason that they didn't believe they could confess their sins because they couldn't speak their sins. This has led to an abuse of people. These oralist schools are treated in the same way by the deaf community as many schools, the Indian schools for First Nations, where we will take the community, take the child out of the community and make them a part of our community. Ultimately, if we are to move beyond that history of abuse and prejudice, we must affirm something deeply that comes from the root of the civil rights disability community, nothing about us without us. What that means at its fundamental level is when approaching a text or approaching an issue, those people who are the subject of the text should be given the privilege in the in voice. This means when reading a text like this, we need to look to interpreters and to scholarship that speaks from a position of being disabled, as opposed to just looking to able-bodied interpreters to understand what the text is going on. And so 
That is why I look to someone like Kathy Black. She was an assistant professor of homiletics at the School of Theology at Claremont. She has worked as a chaplain at Gallaudet University, has pastored two churches for deaf people, she has taught classes on deaf education and, and ministry for people with disabilities. In her book, A Healing Homiletic, Black has some very insightful words to speak about this text. And while I would love to go through them all, I want to focus on verse 36 and her commentary on this. It is typical in Mark's gospel for Jesus to tell the people not to speak about what they have seen and for the people to speak about it anyway. Yet it is particularly curious in this text for the man receives the ability to speak clearly, but yet Jesus bids him to be silent. Instead of being able to speak about what has happened to him, he is ordered by Jesus <coughs> to be silent and to tell no one. There's a profound truth within that text coming from the insights of those who are on marginalized communities. Often those who are in the mainstream or dominant culture see a problem of inclusion as, well, we'll just get a person from this community to be a part of our leadership team or a, as a representative to be a part of the community. Yet, I would argue that while that is a good step ahead, it doesn't get you always there. Representation always does not mean voice. To be able to go into a space where the decisions are made is valuable, but if you're not given the ability to speak your truth, then it becomes mute, pun intended. This also can lead to a question about quota filling. And while it is good to have people there, just because you have a person there doesn't by definition mean that you've helped break down the stigmas and the prejudices that people have. Often when you have one person representing a wide community, they're stuck either internalizing the conflict within that community, so they have to speak from both sides of their mouth, or they privilege their point of view. A friend of mine who was a Korean American pastor in the Presbyterian Church before she became a Korean American pastor was in charge of a board for a famous camp in the Presbyterian Church. And once she came on board, 
the first question to her was, well, how do we get more Koreans to come to the camp? And she was very clear about this. She can say, I can only speak from my personal experience as a first generation, but if you speak to somebody else in my community who may be older or who may be younger from me, you're gonna get a very different approach. Ultimately, this leads to what I would call the no true Scottish crab problem. The no true Scottish crab problem is a combination of crab theory and no true Scotsman fallacy. What do I mean by this? The crab theory is a belief that those in the marginalized community would rather attack people within that community who may be seen as having a little bit more privilege than work together to better themselves to get out of the situation they find themselves in. This is coming from the image of having a bucket of crabs. They will attack each other before they will even think about trying to get out of the bucket. Now, the second part the no true Scotsman fallacy is where we overgeneralize equality to define a group leading to the rejection of the person in the group as opposed to rejecting the definition. Let me put it in a simple way. Bill says, oh, no true Scotsman would ever put sugar in his porridge. Alex replies, but my Uncle Angus is a Scotsman, and he puts sugar in his porridge. Bill concludes, ah, but he is not a true Scotsman. Notice here, the definitional nature is so broad and is so reductive that it comes down to whether you put sugar in it, whether that should be a good definition of what a Scotsman is. When you bring these two together, it leads to the insight of what I would call the no true Scottish crab problem. When marginalized community privilege the representation of the community, this may make the person that is the representative no longer able to feel like they are a part of the community, and if they say something that may hurt or may challenge other members in that community, then they're saying, well, no, they don't represent us anymore. And that's because the person who's the representative now has privilege in a way that the wider community doesn't, because they are heard and the wider community is not. This is often seen as a concept of, oh, they selled out. Now, let me be clear, representation does not always lead to clear voice. But this goes to the problem when we just think we can solve problems of inclusion by building representation. I would argue it would be better that we engage a sense of relationship and building relationship. 
for me, it comes down to a word of intersectionality. Not having one label summarize the identity of one person, but the summation of the labels become the identity. We need to stop looking for the person that checks off the most amounts of boxes for marginalized people. But see that we earn our advocacy by building bridges between those who are in the marginalized community and those who are in the mainstream community. That by building those bridges, we connect those in the marginalized to get the resources they need to do to fulfill their call or God's call in their lives while those in the marginalized community faithfully steward that, those gifts that they have for the community to be able to fulfill and make a more beneficial and more equitable world for us all. At the end of the day, there is a simple reading of this text. But that reading has led to a sense of oralism. And when we read texts like this, we need to affirm deeply, nothing is about us without us. We need to understand that representation isn't the solution in and of itself, but is the first step on that path. It needs to be about building community through relationship. About building meanings, meaning helping people who are on the marginalized gain those resources so that they can fulfill God's call in their life. And in doing that, help steward those gifts to help the community. May it be so for us. Amen. 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 We hope today's sermon podcast was nourishment to your soul. If you'd like to know more about First Christian Church of St. Paul, please visit our website at fccstpaul.org. That's F-C-C-S-A-I-N-T-P-A-U-L.org. May God be with you in the coming week.